Howdy, and welcome to episode 82 of Come and Take It. Before we start today, just want to remind you that if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Here's a quick update for you listeners. Mike Zolkowski, host of this show. Have you been to Six Flags yet? No. But has your family been? Yes. While you were out of town? Yes, I was in Utah. So you've been in Texas the longest of your family, and yet you still haven't been to Six Flags. Hooray for Six Flags! <laughs> and now, here's the show. Listen, if, uh, if anyone associated with or from uh, the Drunk History Show is listening, we're ready to go. This is a, this is a golden episode. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. I'm Scott Elfstrom. And I'm Paul Schmail. One of the most iconic weapons of the American West was the Walker Colt revolver. It was the most powerful pistol of its time and is still the largest black powder revolver ever made. It was created with the input and experiences of the Texas Rangers. It gave the Army, Rangers, and any other frontiersmen who wielded it a weapon capable of knocking down any enemy with a single shot. As remarkable as this weapon is, even more amazing is the story of its namesake, one of the great captains of the Texas Rangers, Samuel H. Walker. But first, what's your favorite pie that you've eaten in Texas? Is there another pie besides pecan? Well, in fact, Paul, there is. There my, is. my grandmother makes a fabulous butterscotch pie that I love. Mm. Exotic well, pies on Texas. Well, the my favorite pie that I've ever had in Texas is at the State Fair, and it's this little church that has a booth at the State Fair in the uh, the food hall right next to the Hall of State, and it's a sweet potato pie. It's a mini sweet potato pie, and it is absolutely the most delicious thing you've ever eaten. Maybe. I've never had it, so I can't, uh, can't weigh in on that one, but my favorite pie... Uh, has always been and continues to be my mother's pumpkin pie. Oh, thanks, Gigi. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I'm just glad nobody said the apple pie from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> Although apple pie from Whataburger—that's a whole other story. Acceptable. <laughs> that's an acceptable answer. You should make a disclaimer that we didn't allow any discussion of fried <laughs> pies. <laughs> Samuel Hamilton Walker was born in Topin Castle, Maryland, to Nathan and Elizabeth Walker in 1815. He was the fifth of seven children, and his father was a wealthy plantation owner. As the younger son, he had relatively few prospects and no interest in trade, so he joined the U.S. Army in 1836. For two years, he participated in the campaign against Chief Osceola's Seminoles in Alabama and Florida and was promoted for his exceptional courage. Despite his slight build, he was a fine soldier, but in 1838, he mustered out of the army and settled in Florida. Three years later, seeking more adventure, he left Florida and headed to Texas, where he would become a legend. He arrived in Texas in January 1842, just in time for a big Mexican invasion of the state. Mexican General Adrian Wall had just marched into Texas and seized San Antonio. Walker joined the Texan volunteers who mustered to repel the invasion. He stayed in the Texan army and was part of the ill-fated Mir expedition, which invaded Mexico in retaliation for Wool's invasion. We had a show about this a few months ago. This, of course, resulted in the infamous Black Bean incident. Walker was captured along with most of the Texans and forced to draw different colored beans to determine who would be executed. Those who drew Black Bean were out of luck. 
And as we record this, it is the 172nd anniversary of that incident. The incident stuck in Walker's craw, and he vowed to take revenge. He actually escaped from Mexican imprisonment and made his way back to Texas, determined to wreak havoc on the Mexicans. In 1844, he joined the famous Captain John Coffee Jack Hayes as a Texas Ranger. He spent two years riding with Captain Hayes, Ben McCullough, and Creed Taylor, and battled Indians before he got his chance to return to Mexico. During that time, Walker earned the nickname Unlucky Walker because he was constantly being wounded during skirmishes. He was part of the famous Battle of Walker's Creek, where 14 rangers took on upwards of 200 Comanche, and Walker was lanced by an Indian. He took months to recover from the wound, but it did nothing to quench his desire for battle. One of the reasons the rangers distinguished themselves in battle was the Colt Patterson, the first revolver to go into production from the famed inventor Samuel Colt. The Patterson tipped the scales in favor of the rangers who previously fought with single-shot weapons. It came with flaws, however, and Walker was keenly aware of them. The Patterson was relatively underpowered, initially only being a 28 caliber weapon and later upgraded to 36 caliber. Multiple shots were often required to bring down a charging Indian, especially one on horseback. It was difficult to load, and because it had a folding trigger, could be dangerous to carry half-cocked. Finally, there simply weren't enough of them, and Colt was in financial trouble. Walker was a great proponent of the Patterson, but he wanted something better. On December 29, 1845, Texas joined the United States and became the 28th to join the Union. War with Mexico, which had never relinquished its claim on Texas, followed soon. In April, war broke out between the two nations, and most of the former Texan Army and Rangers volunteered to join the U.S. Army in its campaign against Mexico. Walker had been serving as a scout and courier for General Zachary Taylor's Army since September 1845 and had enhanced his reputation greatly in the process. In early April, he formed a company of volunteers under Taylor and was soon in the thick of the action. In early May, he and six men braved their way through enemy lines to let the besieged outpost at Fort Brown, which is near the mouth of the Rio Grande, know that they would soon be relieved. He then cut back out and notified Taylor of the enemy positions. His unit was the only group of Texans in Taylor's army at the first battles of the war, Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma a few days later. Walker was cited for his heroism and was rewarded with a full commission in the United States Army in the U.S. Mounted Rifles. He was also permitted to remain a Texas Ranger until his enlistment was completed on October 2nd, during which time he participated in the invasion of northern Mexico and in the Battle of Monterey, where he led a cavalry charge into a column of Mexican lancers. It seems that uh, Texas Rangers had a tradition of serving multiple commissions, wasn't it? Uh, one of the captains was a Texas Ranger and a marshal mm-hmm. and a sheriff or something all at the same time. Yes. These... And, a, and a green grocer and a newspaperman <laughs> yeah, and a no. senator. Well, and that, a that goes without saying. They were all lawyers. <laughs> These actions made Walker one of the first celebrities of the war. He also earned the admiration of Army officers. One said Walker, quote, is not so much of a drilled officer, but for leading a charge or for following a retreating enemy, there is no braver or daring officer in the United States Army. In June of 1846, the 1st Regiment Texas Mounted Riflemen was organized, comprised mostly of Texas Rangers under Jack Hayes. Later that year, Walker was elected Lieutenant Colonel of the unit. He mustered out of federal service in October and took up his new command. Walker went to Washington seeking guns and equipment for his men. 
Later, he traveled to New York, where he met with Samuel Colt and discussed the Patterson revolver's flaws and suggested improvements. Walker's suggestions included increasing the overall size of the weapon, adding a trigger guard, increasing the caliber or bullet size, and doubling the amount of powder used in each chamber. The result was the most powerful handgun of its day, the Walker Colt. It weighed in at 4 pounds 9 ounces and packed a wallop with the increased powder charge and a 44 caliber bullet. The Walker Colt stretched the effective range of a handgun from 60 yards to 100 yards and changed the way battles were fought. Instead of a single-shot carbine or an underpowered Patterson, cavalrymen and rangers had a weapon that could be wielded in one hand while riding a horse and could take down an opponent or his horse with one shot. A single man would now have the firepower of an entire company of dragoons. Walker managed to get the government to contract with Colt for a thousand of the new revolvers. Colt would actually manufacture 1,100, but these extra hundred were gifts or samples that were given to recipients who Colt wanted to or to sell to civilians. The contract hit a snag, though, when the government buyers insisted that Colt needed to provide 1,000 powder flask and bullet molds rather than the 500 contracted for at the already agreed-upon price. Walker tried to explain that each man would carry two pistols and therefore only needed one powder flask and bullet mold. Finally, giving up in disgust over the delays, Walker asked Colt to ship the pistols directly to him and promised he would find a way to pay for the whole order out of his own pocket if the government refused, just so the pistols would get in the hands of his troops as quickly as possible. I have a feeling that the same sort of procurement would not uh, work today in this day and age. Just no. send them and I'll make sure you uh, get like, paid. Look, I'm sorry the Pentagon hasn't cut you a check yet. Just send me those Stinger missiles <laughs> and I'll, I'll pay you for them, I promise. It's nice to know that government bureaucracies has such a long and storied history. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? During, during the Civil War, Texas decided to build cannon yeah. and they tried for over four years and failed miserably. They never made a single one. They finally gave up and let it out to a private company, and in less than a year, they had produced six batteries of five cannon each. <laughs> well, that was that was the Confederate government, though, right? The U.S. Oh. U.S. government just oh yeah just works like clockwork. Like, no, yeah. they're right? all the same. <laughs> yeah. Walker received two of the new revolvers, serial numbers one zero zero nine and one zero one zero, as a gift from Samuel Colt, and he went into battle with them during the Mexican War. His travels in the eastern U.S. further enhanced his reputation. He was a slight, handsome young man, known for his fierceness, fiery temper, and two gigantic pistols. Just like me. (laughs) (laughs) Walker's unit arrived in Veracruz, Mexico in May 1847 to join General Winfield Scott's advance on Mexico City. The primary task of the Texas Rifles was to combat Mexican guerrillas who were attacking the American supply line. Walker is said to have become further embittered against the Mexican people due to the actions of the insurgents, who had developed a very brutal reputation and were greatly feared by the regular army. The personal war between the Texans and the Mexicans intensified in these few months, and the Rangers enhanced their own reputation for ferocity and brutality. It was noted by Walker's superiors that he seldom brought in prisoners. It was also said that, quote, the battlefield was his playground. He could fight and chase guerrillas all day and dance the Highland Fling all night. In October 1847, Walker's unit was escorting a supply train from Perote to Mexico City. Parote was the city where Walker had been imprisoned following the ill-fated Mir expedition. Before he escaped, Walker had promised his fellow prisoners that he would return. He had even placed a dime in a hole at the base of the flagpole at Castle Parote, 
and declared that he would come back as a free man and retrieve it. After writing a letter to his brother, exclaiming about his recent acquisition of the Walker Colts, which he claimed every officer admired, Walker went to the flagpole and retrieved his dime, fulfilling his promise. He then hoisted the United States and Texas flags over the hated prison. Walker set out to find Santa Ana, upon whom he had sworn revenge for the Black Bean incident. Near Wamantla, the Americans learned that there was a sizable force of Mexican cavalry preparing to attack. It was led by none other than Antonio Lopez de Santiana himself. Walker could finally get the chance to gain his revenge. His unit formed the vanguard of the attack against the Mexicans. Walker and his men drove them out of town when captured their cannon. They didn't have any other way to fire the weapon, however, because the igniter was missing. Walker drew his Walker Colts and touched the cannon off with them instead. I'm assuming that he did it without a cartridge in the chamber. Otherwise, I guess they could have just cleared the area. It's like, nobody bullets. stand on he this side of the cannon. bullets into it. I think he was <laughs> just loading them. Remember, these were cap and ball percussion right. pistols. So he just put some powder in there and fired it. Yeah, so it made a flame. Yes. Yes. Makes a, a big, big flame. flame. <laughs> a lot of smoke and flame. 60 uh, grams of powder makes a huge flame. <laughs> Santa Ana led a counterattack against Walker and his men. During the fighting, Walker was killed. Some sources say it was a shotgun from a balcony, while others say he was killed by a Mexican lancer. Whatever the case, the great captain was dead. In the aftermath of the battle, his men took their revenge on the town, which was plundered and burned with horrible fury. Even hardened U.S. Army officers were shocked at the terrible atrocities committed by the Texan troops in their loot of the town. Walker was buried at a nearby hacienda, but after the war, his remains were moved to San Antonio. Today, he is buried in the Oddfellows Cemetery in San Antonio. In the months and years after his death, many of his men carried the memories of their commander and venerated his legacy. Rangers like the brothers Green and Wiley Marshall, Horace Bell, and Creed Taylor all were credited with keeping Walker's spirit alive, never forgetting his heroism and valor. After Walker's death, his revolvers were returned to his family and now are in the possession of Bill Koch of the Koch brothers. Yeah, I'm sure he paid quite a hefty sum for those. I'm sure yes. he didn't miss his, the, a, the couch change that it cost. A legitimate Walker Colt in very poor condition will sell for about $50,000. Huh. So the Imagine, ones that he actually wielded, I'm sure, were... Serial yeah. numbers one and two. <laughs> uh, imagine what Walker's pristine Walker Colts would yeah. sell for. The Walker Colt became a very popular weapon through the Black Powder era. It was heavily used in the Civil War on both sides and continued to be carried by gunfighters, even when the later cartridge pistols, including the famed Colt Peacemaker, became popular. The Walker Colt was not without its flaws, being overly heavy and somewhat unstable, and sometimes prone to misfire and even exploding. But if you needed a pistol that fired like a cannon, the Walker would see you through. Wow. What a great guy. Slight of build, handsome, fine dancer. I told you. I see it every day in the mirror. Yeah, I like you of anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Likes to mm. kill people. Oh, yeah. Well, Likes you know, to fight and kill. Well, I think he's just he's the kind of guy that we've seen for every Texas Ranger. Um, forthright, great character, an amazing shootist, a great horseman. Hatred of Mexicans. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, true. many of them did Many of them, trait. yeah. I mean, Bigfoot but, Wallace. <laughs> yeah, well, they're pretty open in, but in not the Tejanos. historical records. Yeah, well... well that's true, but yeah, they. But the the thing about it is, is that that he he had to come to Texas really to find his 
raison d'etre. Yeah, but you know, I think that's that's everybody that we right, famous that's true. Texas. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you have to take into account that he spent a large portion of his life fighting Mexicans, either in yeah. actual wars or just along the frontier. I imagine he hates Mexicans in much the same way that I hate Internet Explorer Eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the thing, the lasting legacy for Walker. I mean, his life was incredible, but you know, let's let's not dance around the fact that like the gun that bears his namesake is one of the most important handguns of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the mainstay of Civil War weapons. Many, most of the cavalrymen on both sides carried Walker Colts. Yeah, the, today the Walker Colt is the piece de resistance of the collector's collection. You can't get a better set than two Walkers. It's been 81, it's been 81 episodes since we did the France episode, guys. You can cut back on the French, okay? Uh, what I think is really cool, though, about, like, the gun, I mean, like, it's, you know, I mean, they literally were riding around with, like, the little tiny, um, you know, very small caliber pistols, and they're like, well, we had to shoot somebody, like, two or three times before they fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Or I can just be Dirty Harry, and then, like, or, yeah. or they carried it, yeah, or they carried a gigantic horse pistol, which was a single shot basically a short rifle, you know, but it's a single shot. So like I said, if you wanted to, if you wanted to carry uh, five shots, you needed to have five pistols. on. Yeah. You. Yeah. And we talked uh, when we did the episode, the first episode on the Texas Rangers, when we, we talked about the, uh, the fight at, uh, fight at Walker's Creek, when the, the, the Indians were coming at him, they talked about how the Indians were able to fire three or four arrows in the amount of time that it used to take them to fire one shot. Well, with these revolvers, they were able to, you know, match them shot for shot. Well, I think that's the thing is that we saw the technology, you know, there's one of these, the watershed moments that happen in military technology where there was, a, you know, there was the standoff in these incursions. And then all of a sudden it was, oh, now I can shoot, a, I have 40 more yards of range. I'm highly accurate. I can shoot with two hands on horseback because these guys trained like crazy and having 10 10 deadly shots not yeah. well and i think it's remarkable that it was that it was uh, walker and his experience on the battlefield that allowed him to then go to colt who was you know in connecticut he's like hey look this is the way that we use these guns this is how you can make them better so that they can be even more effective put put a trigger guard on there so that we don't fire it in our holster <laughs> Another thing that seems to be lost on a lot of people is many people think that Henry Ford was the one who innovated the production line. But actually, Samuel Colt was one of the earliest innovators of a production line. And piece part building, where every part was made the same way, and so they were somewhat interchangeable, although their tolerances weren't quite as great then as they are now. I, I believe he also introduced the con or was one of the early proponents of the concept of licensed production. Yes. Of, of, of components as well as of whole pieces. So exactly. Well, there's a, like I said, it's a really cool bit of history around that, that gun. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's a neat, it's a neat thing. Keep in mind that they did, that it is very tricky being a cap and being a black powder pistol like that. Uh, modern fires, I think, use bacon grease or something to to make sure the chamber that doesn't explode in your hand like mm-hmm. a uh, you know like a bomb. Well, right. what would happen basically <laughs> is you would you would fire the pistol and the other five chambers would all fire immediately. Right, there's which a doesn't work too well when one of them is aimed at the gun itself. There's there's a famous scene in the movie The Unforgiven where uh, Gene Hackman's character uh, talks about the the other gunfighter who hit, they called him two guns for 
various reasons, but one of them was that he had a walker. He said if he didn't, hadn't gotten rid of that walker cult, it wouldn't have exploded in his hand because that's what walker cults did. Right. Uh, and, and he killed him. So, uh, or d- disabled him and the other guy was able to get the, the drop on him anyway. So I, w- I was thinking about that and I was thinking about other depictions of the Walker cult in movies. And Paul and I were talking about that just a few moments ago. Uh, and what was the one that she mentioned? Josie Wales. Yeah. The outlaw oh, Josie yeah. Wales. He's got two of them. Yeah. Uh, and I love it, that movie. Yeah, I, I mean, anytime it's on, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in for the next two hours. And Eastwood gets the drop on two guys inside that saloon, which no one can believe because of how heavy the walkers were. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he actually held the guns out, butts facing towards the bad guys, and then spun them in his hand and fired them both at the same time. Yeah. Um, and in another movie, uh, there's a miniseries, The Lonesome Dove, Robert Duvall's character carries a walker. And in the uh, the book and the two movies of True Grit, uh, the girl, the young girl character it, it carries around a walker cult. And, right. Which is nearly as big as she is. Yeah, well, I, I I can't say I've ever held a Walker Colt. Probably the closest I've come was my dad used to have a big Ruger Super Black Hawk forty four mm-hmm. Magnum, and it was pretty heavy. Yeah, so, I just a friend of mine had his his dad's old three fifty seven Magnum. It was like basically the Dirty Harry gun, but in in a three fifty seven. Well, if you've ever held a five hundred Magnum Smith and Wesson five hundred Magnum. It doesn't weigh as much as a Walker cult. <laughs> well, and the Walker cult was the most powerful handgun produced in the United States between 1847 and 1935, when the 357 Magnum was introduced. Right. I think it's just it's a crazy it's a crazy weapon, right. and history has shown that it's just one of those things that people look out. There's there's several things go people look at and they go, oh, well, this weapon changed the world. This was an in, this was an invention that changed the world. But it's I think it's a cool one of those great stories of. It was an improvement of an existing invention by someone yeah. who really understood the practical right. application and, of it. And, and if and if it wasn't written in history, um, some of the things that Samuel Walker did, yeah, were the things you would expect to see written in a movie, not in real life. I mean, mm-hmm. like the whole concept of like he survived the the Mirror Expedition Ugh. and the Black Bean Incident, mm-hmm. and then went back years later and dug up his dime and raised those flags. It's like that's that's a movie moment. That that sounds like a movie. It's like, well, it, mm-hmm. really, it really happened. happened. Well, I think right. too, and he and he was a he was a celebrity of his day. I mean, there's most of the images you have him. There's one photo of him that really exists, but most of the images you have of him are are um from basically pulp books and engravings from like Collier's or, or uh, Harper's. He was, he was a, he was a celebrity back East and he was a hero of this war. And so part of the mystique and image of the Texas Ranger, he embodied and his death was a great, you know, a great moment of, of outpouring of popular sentiment as well. And that really helped cement those two revolve, those revolvers that he carried and that bore his name and helped make them popular. And lots of people said, well, if Walker's got those, those guns, I should get those guns too. I think too, you look at it just, I mean, if I say today to anyone who's familiar with Texas, I say Texas Ranger. And we talked about this when we talked about the Texas Rangers, like, uh, where, you know, you go, oh, man, like, even today, you're like, deep respect, that's, it It strikes a chord with, with the power. And when we did the historical episodes on what the Rangers represented, what they put them the, themselves through, the dangers they put themselves through, and how um, just amazing those men were, 
you know, you, he's he's one of the best of them and one of the most famous of them. So he just it you just can't help but but fall in love with his story. This yeah. guy, I mean, and this there's a amazing. reason. There's a reason why Chuck Norris was known as Walker Texas Ranger because that's a name that's associated with the Texas Rangers. Two well, legends among legends. Yeah. You know, I'm in respect to your request not to go to France anymore. <laughs> uh, the, one of the reasons the Walker is the penultimate collector's gun <laughs> is because there were only 1,100 produced. Mm-hmm. And of those 1,100, many of them exploded because yeah. although Colt recommended 50 grams of powder, most people routinely use 60, and some <laughs> didn't bother to measure, and that was sometimes costly. But there's probably 170 left in existence today. Wow. Actual, true, original production Walker yes. Colts. So, wow. but, much like, wouldn't you like to have serial number one? Right. So, <laughs> so most of the Walker Colts that we see... Uh, especially in like movies and stuff were actually the later models of improvements of it, the, the Dragoon pistol and the, the later models. And those generally were called walkers because any sufficiently large, very powerful handgun of that style was considered a walker. You know, I, the one thing I love uh, just to digress a little in movies and um, <clears throat> I, this thing weighed almost five pounds <laughs> of heavy iron. And then when you see something in the movies where somebody picks up a pistol, especially the walk, like you see in the movies, they take this huge hunk of iron and they hit someone in the head. You just got to be like, all right, they're not passed out. They're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's not a weapon. It's a club. Yeah, at that point. Well, on that way, you could use it as a they, club. They no. certainly did. They certainly did. But, but, I mean, one of the tactics of using that weapon was to shoot the enemy's horse. Was to bring down the horse. Does Walker represent uh, one of the best of the Rangers? I think in a lot of ways he does. He's very specific to the Rangers. Unlike most of the Rangers, unlike most of the Rangers that we've talked about, he didn't have a lot of multiple roles. No. Uh, he was he was a Ranger and he was a soldier, and that's what he was. Yeah, I mean, we talked at the beginning how he didn't have any interest in trade, and yeah. he was the the second son, so he was yeah never kind made, of had yeah. to forge his own path. And, and like Sean said, his calling was to be a frontier soldier and yeah. he did it very well yeah never married never settled down never got a home could fight all day could dance all night yeah and you know it's interesting there's been throughout the history of texas and america a number of men who have had the same attributes as him fight all day and dance all night and they all seem to be sort of the same types of characters they love the, the taste of battle they love killing they love fighting all day and then partying all night. We well, he remind me maybe not so much of the the I mean it seemed in the heat of battle that yeah he was in it to win it but then when when he was off it seemed like you know he was a very thinking man he was taking care of the men under his order he was he was very uh, passionate he reminded me in some ways of just the when you talk about the myth of him of like some of these things made me think of when we did the big episode on Jim Bowie. Mm-hmm. And just be like, if there wasn't a documented historical fact, I would not believe that a human achieved these things. Yeah. Well, yes. we we talked about with you know the history of the Texas Rangers and how Texas men uh, couldn't be commanded; they had to be led. And in that sense, Samuel Walker very much embodied that. He was a leader. Yeah. Well, they said he's not much for drilling. Right. But when it gets time to go to bit to work, he's your yeah, man. It's like we can't really order this guy around and you know say follow this formation etc but if you've got some fighting to be done i wouldn't want to be behind anyone else yeah Yeah, when he yells charge 
you better get going because he's already 50 yards ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, and he and he was unusual among the Texans uh, because he he was popular with the regular army people. Most of the Texan volunteers had really poor reputations and very bad hygiene. And there's a lot of writing about both of those things. Um, but Walker had a good positive re- reputation. It was very well respected for his fighting ability. And so uh, they didn't, yeah, they, they couldn't really order the, the, the Texans, but Walker was kind of, and that maybe had something to do with his previous army service. Yeah. As well. the, the Texans had a well-earned reputation. Oh yeah. They frequently told their commanders to screw off and yeah. they took off in their own direction. <laughs> yeah. There, there is no historical record that I could find that uh, Samuel Walker originated the high kicks. No. That, depicted no. Chuck Norris. <laughs> hey, listen, if uh, if anyone associated with or from uh, the Drunk History Show is listening, we're ready to go. This is a this is a golden episode. We're ready to come and do Texas Rangers, Samuel Walker. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. I'm Scotticus. And I'm at Paul Schmail. We'd like to thank Paul for helping us research and write this episode and also for joining us today. We know you love the show and we need your help. So tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That's what really helps us out. If you'd like to support the show financially, Go to patreon.com slash Texas podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.